0: You know, terminology is very important when it comes to doctrine and how we articulate the things that we believe. And when it comes to the birth of Christ, the term or the phrase "virgin birth" is very important. There have been some alternative terms suggested uh, that might one might be uh, encouraged to use instead of virgin birth. For example, uh, some have used the phrase immaculate conception, and the, that term means born without sin, uh, but that doesn't exactly describe the birth of Christ because his birth was really more significant than just the fact that he was born without sin. Incidentally, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was also born by immaculate conception, that she was born without sin, only she did have an earthly father. Uh, Some would simply refer to his birth as a miraculous birth. Well, that's, that's insufficient as well because the physical process of his birth was actually not any different from uh, from uh, any other birth. Some say, well, we'll call it supernatural conception. Well, that comes up short, too, because there are many instances in Scripture uh, where uh, other women had children by supernatural aid. Think Abraham's wife, Sarah. Think of Hannah. Think of Elizabeth, as we looked at last week and this morning. And so all of these alternative terms really come up short in describing the biblical doctrine that is the virgin birth of Christ. Only that term affirms that Jesus was conceived, And brought into this world by the power of God alone without a human father's involvement. Now, Genesis chapter three, verses 14 and 15, we have the very first instance in scripture where the virgin birth is prophesied. This is right after man has sinned. God has come to the garden and, uh, and he has, uh, he has pointed out man's sin and he is, uh, he, is, he was proclaiming the judgment that would come on each party, man, woman, and then the serpent. In verse 14, "...the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed." It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice that God said to the serpent that there would be enmity enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Not the seed of the man, not the seed of the man and the woman, but the seed of the woman exclusively. And there is the first instance of the promise or the prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. And this doctrine is critical to our faith. And so this time of year when we think about Christmas and we celebrate Christ's birth, of course, we, we, um, there's a lot about it that we, we are reminded of, truth that is important, truth that is crucial. But the doctrine of the virgin birth is one of the ones that is most critical to our faith. And when you stop to really think about it, for those of us who've been raised in church, we've been taught about the virgin birth from the time that we can even remember. It just can become kind of a uh, a given, a, something we just take for granted. But when you really stop and think about it, that is kind of a far-fetched thing to believe, isn't it? That 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 a child would be born without any human father, that a child would be conceived strictly by the intervention of the Holy Ghost. I mean, that's... That's kind of, it requires faith. Let's just put it simply. You've got to have faith to believe that. And for some people, it's just too far-fetched. They reject it altogether and they say, no, that could never have happened they'll read back into scripture and they say, well, people just made that up to give legitimacy to Christ. You know, they they came up with this idea that Jesus was God. And so in order to support this, they they came up with the idea of the virgin birth. And other people have gone so far as to blasphemously claim that Jesus was fathered by uh, a a Roman soldier or something like that, that he would have uh, been been fathered out of wedlock and that the story of the virgin birth was concocted somehow to... uh, Uh, you know, give credibility to Jesus' teaching or or something like that. But the fact of the matter is that the doctrine of the virgin birth is utterly indispensable to the gospel. If you deny the virgin birth of Christ, you're denying several very important truths that ultimately come down to this, that Jesus had to die for his own sin and he did not die for yours. And if Jesus did not die for your sins and mine, well, then we're not saved. And so the doctrine of the virgin birth is essential. Without it, we cannot be saved. If you deny that Jesus was born of a virgin, you're denying that He's God. And if He's not God, then He's not sinless. And if He's not sinless, then His sacrifice was for Himself and not for us. And I, as we look at this tonight, and I know from most everybody in here, if not everybody in here, this is not a new truth. But we need to be reminded of it again this evening, if for no other reason than to be reminded of how important it is that we share the message of the gospel with others at this Christmas time. That the doctrine of the virgin birth and the uh, doctrine of, of the incarnation and all of these Christmas doctrines that, that we talk about, they're, they're not just fun facts. It's not just Bible trivia. This is, these are all components of the gospel message And what better time to share that message with people than this time of year when we celebrate the greatest gift ever given, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we want to take just a little bit of time and look in Scripture at the importance of this Christmas doctrine, the virgin birth. Heavenly Father, please give us wisdom as we look at your word tonight. Help us. To understand it, help us to realize that this is not something we can compromise on. This is an absolute truth that we must stand firm on or else our faith collapses around it. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold and firm and yet loving in our stand and our proclamation of the truth. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter number 1 now, Matthew chapter number 1. I want to begin tonight by talking about the promise of the virgin birth, the promise of the virgin birth. As we already noted from Genesis chapter 3, the, the prophecy of the virgin birth goes all the way back literally to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. And in Matthew chapter 1, I want us to read briefly the account of... Matthew's account of the birth of Christ it says in verse number 18 now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. the birth of Christ, he focuses in chapter 1 on, on Joseph's perspective of the story. Luke focuses on Mary's perspective, uh, but Matthew on Joseph's. And Joseph, you know, uh, when he had heard about Mary being pregnant, he thought what most everybody, if not everybody, would have thought in that instance. Oh, she's been unfaithful. And so as he thought about what to do about this situation, the Lord uh, sent a messenger to him who appeared to him, an angel appeared to him in a dream and told him that it's okay, that the child that's conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Notice the emphasis here in Matthew, verse number 18. It says that, That it was before they came together, Mary and Joseph, there had been no physical relationship. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. That's an assertion of the virgin birth, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Look at verse 20. The angel tells Joseph, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Again, another assertion of the doctrine of the virgin birth. <clears throat> and as the angel assures him that it's okay for them to marry, that this child is, is, uh, is, is of the Lord and that it, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, call his name Jesus, that is Jehovah saves for he will save his people from their sins. He quotes to Joseph a Bible verse to prove the validity of what he's saying. This is something, by the way, which we noticed in our study of 2 Peter, that, that Peter, even though Peter had uh, was used by God to give Scripture, he constantly went back to Old Testament Scripture to prove what he was saying. And here we have an angel of the Lord who we would expect that everything he says is absolutely a message from God, but yet the angel says, just go back to the Bible and look here. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14 as the prophecy that the virgin birth fulfilled. But you know, that was not the only prophecy. We read Genesis chapter 3. Another one is found in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22. How long wilt thou go about, O backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man." Now, that reference in 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 jeremiah thirty one twenty two doesn 't usually come up as often in the context of Christmas stories, but that 's absolutely a prophecy of the virgin birth. Here is a brand new thing: a woman is going to go around going to surpass or compass a man that is she 's going to have a child without the involvement of a human father now. This is is something that, uh, again, is reiterated throughout Scripture, and then we come to Matthew chapter 1, and we find this verse from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that is quoted, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The doctrine of the virgin birth is essential because if Jesus was not born of a virgin then all of the promises and the prophecies that God gave are untrue. And God, therefore, is a liar. Now, some scholars have tried to say that the word virgin should be translated simply as young woman, and it has really no reference to whether she was married or anything else like that. In fact, some Bible versions actually change the word virgin to simply unmarried woman, but Doing that ignores the fact that it was not her unmarried state that made Mary wonder at the angel's announcement. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Again, words are important. The words we choose to describe doctrines are important because words have meaning. And it's not simply the fact that she wasn't married. It's that she wasn't physically involved with any man. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? That was Mary's question. She didn't understand how this could happen, given the fact that that she was pure, that she was... Uh, uh, reserving herself for her husband in the time that they would be married. And the angel answered the question in verse 35 by saying, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So it's not just that an unmarried woman or a young woman will have a child, but that a virgin would give birth to the Son of God. This doctrine is affirmed in the epistles as well. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4, the Bible says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. Clearly, another reference to the virgin birth of Christ. If Jesus Christ, who was declared by God to be His Son, is not, was not born of a virgin then God's a liar. Remember there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then God did not speak the truth. And here's the, here's the conclusion that it, it's this. If God is a liar, then we are hopeless and helpless. If God said something that didn't come true or He said something that wasn't true, then we can have no faith in Him. But I'm thankful that God cannot lie. Titus 1 and verse number 2, Romans 3 and verse number 4, Numbers 23 and verse 19, and many other places in Scripture all affirmed to us the same truth, that God cannot lie. The virgin birth is... Is an important fulfillment of scriptural prophecy and the promises of God. And if God's word can be broken, then our faith ultimately stands in ruin. If you were to just pick this one doctrine and say, all right, we'll stand firm on everything else, but this thing of the, doc- the this doctrine of the virgin birth, it's just too far fetched, so we're just gonna toss that one out. Then you have no faith to stand on whatsoever. Because if God's word can be broken in any one point, it can be broken at every point. But thank God his word stands unbroken. Even a promise as unimaginable as the virgin birth is kept by a God who cannot lie, with whom nothing is impossible. It occurs to me that throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you find stories of of births, especially, that came through miraculous means. I mean, you think about the, stories, the story of Abraham and Sarah. You think about Hannah. You think about Elizabeth. And, and there are some others. And, and it's, I don't know that it's fair to call it a common thread, but it is a common occurrence in Scripture. And all of that, again, like we saw this morning, the angel Gabriel told Mary, hey, your cousin Elizabeth, who's old and was barren, now she's six months pregnant, because with God, nothing's impossible. All of that is, they are pointers, these little miracles, if you will, are pointers to the big miracles so that we might believe that Jesus Christ was indeed born of a virgin. I want you to notice number two, not only the promise of the virgin birth, but the necessity of the virgin birth. Why is this doctrine essential to our faith? Why is it that we can't just take it or leave it? And it really boils down to this simple statement, that without the virgin birth, Jesus would not be God. It's really that simple. If Jesus came into this world by natural means, then he would have no claim to being God. So to say that Jesus Christ is God without also saying he was conceived by God would be contradictory. And that's why the angel emphasized to Mary that she would become pregnant by the Holy Ghost in Luke 1.35. The Holy Ghost will come upon you and that, and, and that child that, that will be conceived will be called the Son of God. So without the virgin birth, the doctrine of the deity of Christ utterly collapses. And then what you're left with is a doctrine where somehow Jesus achieved Deity, which incidentally is what the Mormon church and many others teach, that Jesus was born just like anybody else, but somehow he achieved a state of Godhood. Oh, and by the way, you can do the same thing. And that is a false doctrine. Jesus did not achieve deity. Jesus is God. And that's a very important distinction. Back in Matthew, as the angel was speaking to Joseph in the dream, he quotes from Isaiah 7 and verse 14 and says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Even the name, one of the names assigned to Jesus by the angel is a clear indication of the deity of Christ from conception. Not that he achieved deity, but that from conception, he would be called God with us. He is God and he is with us. Now, in regards to the deity of Christ, there are some who who falsely assert that Jesus never claimed to be God. I've heard that and I've read that and I'm thinking to myself, have you even seen a Bible? Because when you read through the New Testament, when you read through the Gospels, you find that there were many, many occasions that Jesus asserted and claimed to be God. Now, he did it in specific language for a specific reason, but everybody that heard him knew exactly what he was saying. On more than one occasion, in fact, People wanted to stone him. They wanted to execute him for blasphemy because they understood what he was saying to be saying that he was God. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. Turn over to John chapter 10. Let's look at one instance. John chapter 10. Verse number 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Notice that statement in verse number 30. Jesus claimed to be one and the same with God the Father. Now, some people might say, well, he was just claiming to be in harmony with God. That's not what Jesus was claiming. And for proof, let's look at the reaction of the people who heard him say that at that very moment. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. Which of those works do you, for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answering him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They understood that when Jesus said, I and my father are one, that Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, this is just one of many examples in Scripture. We could look at this, the time when Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven. And they, they murmured amongst themselves, Who can forgive sins but God? Nobody. That was the point. Jesus could rightly forgive sins because Jesus is God. And many other examples. And then we look in the the epistles of the New Testament, and we find that they also affirm the deity of Christ. For example, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul wrote there concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead." What Paul is saying there is that the resurrection was the exclamation point on the deity of Christ. It was stated all the way back at the beginning, but when we get to the resurrection, there should be no doubt left whatsoever because only God has the power to lay down his life and take it back up again. He was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be God the Son with power by the resurrection of the dead. Now, Without the virgin birth, the deity of Christ collapses. And without the deity of Christ, then you do not have a sinless sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not God, if He was just a normal man, quote unquote, then that means that He was a sinner just like you and me. And you could argue all you want that he was the best one to ever live and he was a great prophet and he was a wonderful teacher and he was almost perfect. But if Jesus had even a single sin, he was not sinless and therefore his sacrifice would have been insufficient. Because mankind is a sinful race. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, mankind died spiritually. Remember, God said in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God said not to eat, there was a death that took place. They died spiritually. It was illustrated when God came to the garden and they had hidden themselves. There was now a separation between man and God. The the human race no longer possessed innate spiritual life to pass on to their children. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And that life, that spiritual life, can only be achieved or given, received rather, when it's given to us by God. As Romans 6.23 goes on to say, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, so because the human race has no spiritual life to give, everyone who is born is born spiritually dead because they did not have a parent with the ability to impart spiritual life. In order to break that cycle, God had to intervene so that a child would be born that had spiritual life. Only God can give spiritual life, both uh, give life both spiritually and physically. It was God who breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul in Genesis 2 and verse number 7. And it was through the Lord Jesus Christ, get this, that spiritual life was reintroduced into the human race. Romans chapter, or John chapter 1 and verse number 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 14, and verse number 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No human with both a human mother and a human father could rightly say, I'm the life. I have innate spiritual life to give. Come to me and I will give you eternal life. No person could say that but the Lord Jesus Christ. This spiritual life is a result of the fact that He is God. And therefore He is sinless. There is no sin and consequently no penalty for sin which is death. And understand that this is not, we're not saying that Jesus somehow managed to keep himself sinless. That, you know, somehow he just, he he did a really good job of obeying all the rules and that's how he ended up sinless. No, it's much more than that. It's because Jesus is God that he was utterly incapable of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 1 John 3, 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Without the virgin birth, the deity of Christ collapses, and if Jesus is not God, then He is dead in His trespasses and sins. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then He is not God. And he is not sinless. And so let's look number three. And finally, at the point, the point of the virgin birth. We see that it was promised. We see why it's such an important thing. But, you know, really, what does it mean for you and for me? Well, we are all sinners. Because we come from the line of the first Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's us. We are sinners, and therefore we came into this world with the penalty of sin upon us. Sin is an offense against God, and God said that sin must be paid for by death. That is the penalty. In order for us to be rescued from that penalty, the only possible uh, alternative would be for a substitute to die in our place. That was first illustrated back in the garden when God killed an animal to make coats of skin for Adam and Eve. The very first physical death of creation came when God killed that animal, whatever it was, and made those coats of skin to replace the leaves that man attempted to cover his sin and his guilt with. God made a covering, a covering made from death. And so a substitute would have to be found for us that could take our place, but it could not be just any substitute. In order for us to be saved from our sins eternally, the substitute had to have eternal life to give. That substitute had to be sinless. That substitute had to be holy. That substitute had to be eternal. In other words, that substitute had to be God Himself. Because he's the only one who fits the qualifications. Our hope could not rest on other men because all men are sinners. Our hope could only rest on God. If God himself did not come and rescue us, then none of us would be rescued. God would have to come. And in the irony of all ironies, God would have to die. The eternal creator, the giver of life, would have to die. How could that even happen? Because that, that, that's a contradiction. If God is eternal, He can't die. How can that be reconciled? Well, God in His infinite wisdom reconciled that seeming discrepancy when He was born as a little baby in Bethlehem. God became man so that He could die for our sins. Lord willing, next week we're going to look in great detail at the doctrine of the Incarnation. But for now, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and let's just read what God said about this. Philippians chapter 2. unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ became man ultimately so that he could die, so that he could give his life for you and for me. But in order for that sacrifice to be sufficient, Jesus Christ, number one, had to be sinless himself. And if he wasn't born of a virgin, he wasn't God and he wasn't sinless. But also for that sacrifice to be sufficient, he had to have eternal life. And if he wasn't born of a virgin, he wasn't God and therefore he didn't have eternal life. You understand that the point of the virgin birth is that that's how Jesus had to be born so that we could be saved. Without the doctrine of the virgin birth, we are left having to pay for our sins ourselves. We are left trying to do the best that we can do and ultimately failing to try and solve our sin problem. In order for us to receive spiritual life, that life has to be given to us by God Himself. And that's why Jesus came to earth, to reintroduce spiritual life into the human race. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the last or the second Adam. His physical form came into being by a special creative act of God so that man could be given life. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it wasn't for His sin. It was for ours. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died For our sins, according to the Scriptures. Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a song in our hymnal, Born to Die. Born to die upon Calvary. That is why Jesus came to this world. You know... It's typically at Easter that we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But without Jesus' birth, there would not have been His death, burial, and resurrection. They're all connected. And if His birth was not a virgin birth, then He is not God. And if He is not God, then He is not sinless and He is not eternal. And if Jesus Christ is not sinless and eternal, then His death on the cross was no different than anyone else's. And He doesn't have eternal life to give you and me. Christmas is much more than a time just to decorate our homes and to give presents and celebrate with special occasions. Christmas is a time to remember when God gave the greatest gift ever, when He gave His own Son. A time to remember when Jesus gave His own life. And a time to remember that all who place their faith in the gospel Will receive the gift of eternal life. And as we go about our business day to day through this time of year, as we go Christmas shopping, we go to the holiday parties, and as we have all of the gatherings and the get togethers, may we not forget that as Christians, we have the greatest gift to give the gift of the gospel. The message that, yes, Jesus was born, but he also died and rose again so that we might be saved. And while it's great to give gift cards, clothes, ties, and tools, what's even better to give is the hope of eternal life that is found in the message of the gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you sent your Son for us, and that he gave himself for us. And Lord, as we have tried our best to understand this doctrine and the importance of it, Lord, it's because we want to be true to your word, and we want to be faithful to the message of the gospel. And Lord, that is a message that we should not keep to ourselves. And so I pray that during this Christmas time that we would take the opportunities that you give to share the message. And Lord, that we would be like those angels were for the shepherds, that voice declaring the truth, that peace can come on earth through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed. You know, over Christmas time, we generally have the opportunity to see and talk to people that we might not see and talk to throughout the rest of the year. And for many in here, that means an opportunity... To interact with friends and family, loved ones who are not saved. So by way of invitation tonight, I want to invite you to pray about somebody that you know who's not saved. That God would give you an opportunity in this Christmas season, to share the gospel with them. And I mean more than just invite them to church, more than just talk religious talk with them, but actually share the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ.